Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Adam Stilberg, who is Sam Nunn Professor and Chair in the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. He teaches international security, Russia, Eurasian politics and security affairs, nuclear nonproliferation and energy security, among many other topics. He's served as a political consultant at RAND, has worked closely with former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn in drafting policy recommendation, has authored five books and received numerous accolades. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Dr. Stilberg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, you know, it just so happens I, I didn't realize this, but we're recording uh, on the first year anniversary of the Ukraine war, uh, and so there's a lot going on. And 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 maybe just to start to get your, you know, big picture, broad take on uh, the situation. You've been looking at Ukraine and and Russia and different respects for many years. You know, I guess more on the nuclear non-proliferation energy sectors and 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 elsewhere, but. You know, after it's been one year, what what are sort of your thoughts as to what's going on and and how things are are going? Well, when I reflect back, you know, on the year, I think the word that comes to mind is surprise. I think this is a we're in a situation where no one thought we would be. In other words, in a war of attrition, one year out, uh, everybody was expecting. Well, first, it wasn't clear if anybody was expecting war. Uh, to break out in early uh, 2022, although uh, the intelligence agencies at the you know months before or a month before began to um, you know pull the the fire alarm on that, uh, but the you know for the most part, I think everybody was caught by surprise. Uh, then when and the way and when uh, Putin launched uh, the initial military campaign and the failure to capture Kiev in a in a sort of a lightning kind of strike. Um, one that he, that the Russians tried that type of maneuver. That was not what people were expecting. They were expecting to see more of a classic, you know, sort of, um, uh, tank armored campaign go rapidly, a blitzkrieg kind of across, um, Ukraine, but that was not what was attempted. Uh, so that caught people by surprise, the failure of that effort and the logistical problems that were exposed and the military incompetence that was exposed by the, the Russian military. I think that was uh, caught everybody by surprise. Uh, the resilience of Ukrainians, uh, both the leadership and the, the population to stand firm. Uh, you know, if people remember, um, uh, Zelensky was not regarded as a very strong leader uh, that at the time did not have a lot of political uh, legitimacy, or I should say authority. Um, and uh, he certainly wasn't seen as a war uh, leader. Um, and yet he has surprised everybody by his ability to really rally the country and remain, um, you know, a invigorated, um, popular and effective uh, politician uh, and leader uh, for the country. Uh, I think everybody was surprised at how resilient uh, NATO and Europe has been uh, in standing firm. Uh, and now we have Sweden and Finland uh, becoming uh, reversing decades of their their policy position to become to aspire uh, explicitly to become members uh, of NATO. Uh, so that's caught everybody. I think another thing that's caught everybody by surprise is, you know, the United States, notwithstanding the war, made it very clear in the at the onset that we were going to avoid direct conflict. Uh, this was not news to uh, Ukrainians or to the uh, or to the Putin leadership. Yet, 
We saw nuclear weapons being brandished, albeit in an opaque manner, almost from the get-go of the war. So here's a war where the United States clearly put limits on our on our level of military engagement uh, from the onset, yet all of a sudden, on numerous occasions, uh, we've seen uh, the Putin regime practice nuclear brinksmanship, seemingly out of nowhere. And of course, another surprise has been uh, we were debating whether or not we should provide Javelin, uh, anti-tank uh, weaponry. Uh, and now we are not only providing that weaponry in long-term and long-range artillery, but we are providing tanks. And now there's even some deliberation about attack aircraft. So uh, we are in a very different place uh, one year later than we thought we'd be. And as we as our thinking was evolving over the course of the year, we still have been caught by surprises, as I've mentioned. So surprise, I think, is the watchword for the year, not to mention, um, you know, disaster, um, you know, uh, you know, tragedy uh, at all levels, of course, that and the endurance that the Ukrainians uh, have uh, demonstrated and had to had to experience. Um, but uh, but surprise at the at the high level globally, I think, is um as a big issue. And also I would say surprise on the energy front too. I mean everybody thought that energy was going to be the cudgel and that was going to be the weak uh link in the chain if you will among the western allies and um the european allies not only are willing to stand firm in their military assistance uh but to stand firm in the face of high gas uh prices and challenges uh, because if you remember going into 2022 uh, European gas stocks, uh, storage facilities were were not in, an, in a good place. And so there was an expectation that this was going to be a lever that Russia could use and continue to use. But we've seen that that is not the case as well. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell de-googled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. I did want to get your thoughts on energy, and uh, I, I would say uh, you've given a fair assessment i know some people might get uh angry i i try to stay in the middle because you know with the western narrative and the russian narrative especially on the telegrams 
they I feel they both go to extremes, but there's a few people that I've been interviewing that are uh Slavs, you know, Serbians uh, as well as uh Russians who are saying, well, Russia isn't uh you know really and as you said they're, they're making errors and they're not doing so well uh militarily uh and so russian red lines uh something you, you've been talking about and i had a recent guest uh brussels-based analyst gilbert doctorow where he was talking about red lines and how both russia and the west are testing each other's red lines and you mentioned direct conflict i, I recently saw a clip from earlier in the month austrian an Austrian colonel was saying how um, the way with with which they would avoid direct conflict, they, they were going to have NATO soldiers or Austrian soldiers or Polish soldiers um, take off their uniforms, he was basically saying, and work as mer mercenaries or private contractors in Ukraine. So that way, technically, there wouldn't be direct conflict between Russia. But th this sort of talk is 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 also kind of crazy as you said and i have i've heard i have heard some commentary from western uh, generals or leaders urging us to start direct war or conflict with um russia and as you say uh, on both sides there's talk about tactical use of tactical mini nukes and 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 this sort of stuff so you know any further thoughts that you have on uh, the red lines and escalation from from here on out because it does seem we are on this slow trajectory of you know step-by-step -step escalation and it's not looking good so a couple of things one is i'm not a military uh analyst so operationally i'm i'm out of my depths but i would say that my from my vantage point and especially at the strategic level i do think russia they made all of those mistakes that i mentioned on the ground and operationally and logistically but they are learning and the russia military uh prowess today is not where they were in March of uh, 2022. So there's learning going on, and the type of warfare, this this attrition warfare, and mounting a, some sort of offensive that we seem to be on the precipice of, if not already uh, engaged in, is uh, is something that is is different than we saw in the past. So I, I would be careful about drawing too many inferences about an about a uh, incompetent uh, Russian military. I think they. There are a lot of advantages that they have militarily on the conventional level to wage this kind of war. And I do think at the strategic level that the Kremlin still thinks that time is on its side, um, as opposed to uh, the need to gamble for resurrection, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you also mentioned mercenaries, and that's another dimension that's kind of a little bit beyond my pale. But it also gets to some of the surprises, uh, which is the dissension, the open dissension between uh, the Wagner Group leadership and the the high command uh, in the Russian military, which is in the especially in the recent days, has really come out into the open, um, uh, where Prigozhin seems to be really, um, you know, castigating uh, the high command for not providing enough supplies and and maybe even intentionally withholding supplies. And there's been a long-standing tension between uh Wagner group and the Russian military but I would also note that Wagner's not the only mercenary group involved obviously the Kadyrovsky the the Kadyrov's uh groups there's some other uh groups Cossacks uh so this is a very this is a surprising dimension as well this the emergence of multiple mercenary groups uh in Russia and the relationship between the Kremlin, the high command, and these groups is not all that clear. And in the event 
that uh, we uh, we do see in the future, which we don't see now, domestic instability in Russia. This could be a uh, you know be quite foreboding. Uh, but so those are two elements: the conventional capability and the and the mercenary dimension to it. But you really asked me about the red line issue, and this is actually quite interesting because. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about red lines and and there's you know on the one hand people think that um, these explicit statements of you know don't you know lines in the sand drawing lines in the sand or uh, explicit threats with consequences um, issued by Putin which have been um, you know which spiked in 2021 and 2022. By the way, red lines are not a traditional Russian way of practicing crisis diplomacy, but we have seen a spike. In fact, some of my own research, we've recorded the Russian president uttering the the uh, explicit red line terms about 54 times since uh, 2000. But about over 50% of those times have been in 2021 and 2022 and the beginning of uh, 2023. So they have, been, they have resorted to that term. But what's fat, and so for many, that resort is either a sign of some sort of strategic signaling that um, that the Kremlin is trying to convey. Others see this as really a last-ditch effort uh, by a leader that's playing a weak hand, uh, if not an irrational leader, uh, or a ruthless leader. But nonetheless, increasingly, there's the view in the West that the, um, the seemingly uh, uh, inability to back up the red line threat suggests that these threats may be hollow and that increasingly there are signs of bluster, not uh, resolve. And as a result, um, we are, there's a tendency uh, to discount uh, the statements about red lines. So red lines have, have garnered a lot of attention from my own research. Like I, like I mentioned, um, they are not used frequently by uh, Russian presidents, uh, as opposed to we think about those as a mainstay almost uh, for deterrence, right? In the Western canon, a red line is all about making explicit your deterrent threat, right? So they have to involve a threat with a consequence, and they're made explicitly as a way to reduce the or, or to bolster the credibility of your deterrent threat by uh, increasing the reputational cost, both domestically and in internationally, of reneging on those red lines, right? So it's all about deterrence and it's a way of demonstrating credibility because you're gonna go say something explicitly, don't do this or else, and that puts political pressure by your, you know, by the international community and the domestic uh, arena. Well, for that to be the case, uh, they have to be very explicit by definition. Well, when we look more carefully at these 54 times uh, that they've been used by the Russian president, uh, we see, one, they're anything but, but uh, uh, clear. They're opaque. Rarely, um, uh, well, they're multiple threats. Don't send troops into Ukraine. Don't provide offensive weapons. Don't provide defensive weapons. Don't provide um, long-range artillery, right? Don't move, don't have NATO troops stationed near the border uh, of Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So there have been multiple red lines, right? But these threats have not been backed by explicit consequences, right? So 
rarely does the Russian president ever say what the consequence uh, would be of transgressing that red line. There has not been one paragraph in a speech by a Russian by Putin. Um, uh, in 2021 or 2022 or 2023, where red lines, explicit reference to red lines and nuclear in any context have been made. Yes, there have been opaque references to nuclear weapons. And yes, there have been explicit uh, statements about red lines, but not that the two have not been related uh, together. Uh, notwithstanding the debate in the West about uh, if we cross one of these red lines, we're we're risking nuclear uh, escalation. So very interesting dynamic there. Uh, and my own research suggests that one of the reasons we're seeing this, it's not that Putin is irrational, not that he's necessarily, uh, th these are necessarily hollow threats. It's that they have a different approach uh, to competitive bargaining. Uh, and their concept of deterrence uh, is aimed at blurring lines between peace and war, enhancing uncertainty, not reducing uncertainty like bolstering credibility that we think about. It's to cause confusion, to manipulate the adversary's understanding of its environment, to complicate an adversary's decision making, to fumble on its own internal debates to draw conclusions about what Russia is doing or not doing, to then ultimately be self-deterred. So it's a fundamentally different approach to, to crisis bargaining. Now, from my vantage point, this is doubly dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous because one, because it's opaque and not linear. By the way, you were suggesting that we're we there's a sense that we're gradually ratcheting up pressure. But the way they use uh, red lines like I said, they issued red lines at the very beginning of the conflict, before there was uh, a war of attrition or there was really uh, any any signs of their their fumbling on their own demise. So they've been issued sporadically during this period. And I would argue that it's not part of a linear turning of the screws. It's all about creating confusion at different moments. And uh, But this is a problem because on the one hand, you're doing the exact opposite of what we think a red line is. You're creating uncertainty, which can lead to misperceptions and miscalculations on our part. And by the way, those miscalculations might not lead us to be paralyzed like the Russian, uh, uh, like the Russian strategy may be aimed at, but actually increase our resolve to stand firm and keep pressing ahead. And that's the other problem, is that the repeated uh, experience that we have by not seeing a Russian uh, leader stand firm in these red lines increases our perception that these are hollow threats. And if they're not hollow threats, but we're playing different, we have different playbooks for competitive and crisis uh, bargaining, then it's like we're walking in each other's minefield. There may be a risk of ex escalation, but it will be punctuated, not gradual. And that's the challenge, I think. Uh, that's the doubly dangerous part of it, is that it really uh, risks taking us both uh, to outcomes like an escalation to an unconventional use of, of weaponry uh, that neither or none of the sides uh, want at this stage. Now, I would say that's today. And I still, my reading of uh, the Kremlin is that they still think time is on their side. 
They think that uh, they're, you know, Ukraine's fighting a, a classic, you know, war, a uh, conventional war. And, um, you know, Russia's not really paying any cost at home. So they can regenerate uh, their capabilities, albeit maybe with not the most sophisticated weaponry, but the kind of war that they're waging doesn't require necessarily, uh, uh, you know, huge inventories of highly accurate uh, surgical uh, strike kinds of uh, uh, capabilities. They can throw both people and older uh, uh, capabilities, dumber uh, capabilities um, at, at targets to outlast uh, Ukraine. So I think that they feel as long as uh, they can maintain uh, the messaging at home, um, as well as the political control uh, at home, that uh, they are, time is on their side. And it's only a matter of time before the stockpiles begin to, to get depleted in the West, the the wariness of the war uh, begins to uh, take place among different domestic in different domestic political contexts in Europe and in the United States, and that the divisions between what our aims may be to ending this conflict and Ukrainian aims uh, may be very different. And so, I still think as long as it, they're optimistic then their calculation is about uh, the willingness to pay costs to achieve their their benefits. But should they switch and feel like it's all about minimizing damage and preventing a certain loss to the regime uh, or otherwise, then I think the calculation begins to change. And that's where I think we have an opportunistic Putin change and become a more risky Putin or re Russian leadership. And that's where I think it gets to the triple danger uh, that, what I, that I was mentioning, because then those red line statements could all of a sudden switch. And, and uh, then there'd be more of a willingness to take a risk to gamble on resurrection. Um, so it's going to be a, this is the challenge for us, because as long as a war is being waged, we want to make sure that the Russians are paying a high cost, uh, but in the event that the Russians feel that defeat, and especially the Kremlin feels that that, de that defeat is imminent and it may have domestic political reverberations for them, that's when things may get uh, more unpredictable and you may see a more risk-prone uh, Kremlin. But I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but this is the, one of the challenges moving forward to the next years, how to manage that, uh, that balance between, you know, as long as they continue to fight and not be willing to, to engage in some sort of, um, you know, peace uh, talks. Uh, and, and it's not only, obviously, Russia's got to be getting to that point, and they have not been willing to do that up to now. But Ukraine also needs to do that. Uh, and to be in a position to do that before that can happen. But as, until we're in that situation, um, we need to be careful about, um, you know, these notions of total victory, because that could have a, uh, that could shift their calculus to, to increasing risk taking. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of my interview back in 2021, before uh, the war began with former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter, who even back then was talking about us being in the nuclear Spectre, uh, and just as you're sort of outlining that, uh, that exists, uh, most definitely. And just about those hollow red lines again, some of the Slavs that I've talked to who are by no means anti Russian themselves, but they are kind of seeing, uh, they're pointing out the incompetence of, uh, of Russia and so how, uh, you know, um, 
some of these threats may be uh, hollow. N- not that they're wanting that to be the case, but they're trying to be more realistic versus some of these people who are hyping up, um, you know, uh, Russia. And I- I'm trying to see things as they are, and that's why I get pooped on from everyone from, from all sides. But um, talking about then, uh, I guess the economic front sanctions, all these Western sanctions on uh, Russia. I mean, I've even had Russian listeners who would donate to the podcast send me uh, a mail like a year ago saying, sorry, I can't donate anymore because I'm cut off, cut off from um, SWIFT. But it, it seems that up until now, Russia has been um, batting down the hatches and, and, and uh, doing well economically. And j- just to one of your previous points, I think that's the, the strategy uh, Russia has historically of um, you know, taking it on the chin. Like if we look at, you know, when Napoleon invaded Russia and they pulled back and, uh, you know, for many months that they, they used this sort of strategy, this long game, and that served them well. And, you know, when when um, Nazi Germany invaded uh, the Soviet Union, it, uh, that also worked uh, well uh, for them. So I think they're used used to that. Um, but there's all this talk now of BRICS, BRICS Plus. Just yesterday I was reading Belarus is interested in joining BRICS. So I guess it would be two Bs in BRICS, BRICS plus, and then there's this talk of multipolar world. And then the the East, if Russia's cut off from sanctions, they're like, okay, we're just going to direct our gas um, exports to, you know, China and India and the building pipelines through Mongolia and and, and so on and so forth. And so w- w- what's your take on the sanctions as well as this, uh, you know, multipolar world that's uh, all the rage now? Right. So I would say a couple of things. Uh, One, you know, to go back to sanctions and my original point about surprises, one of the things that's been very surprising has been the magnitude or scope of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia uh, in terms of the economic impact uh, that they've had. But um, that said, uh, there's a difference between economic impact and success of sanctions, right? So sanctions are not just imposed to, to level pain on an adversary. They're designed to advance some sort of objective, like, uh, you know, it, you know, stopping the war, pull out of Crimea, pull out of the, uh, you know, Donetsk and, and Luhansk. I mean, they're, they're specific objectives, and those objectives clearly haven't been realized. Um, and if anything, we're seeing the uh, a willingness by the Kremlin to double down on the military dimension to the war, uh, notwithstanding the costs that they're incurring at all levels, economic costs, political costs, military costs, international reputational costs. So sanctions to date, it's hard to point to them as having um, strategic success, right? They've had economic, and there's some debate over the economic impact that they've had. I mean, IMF has readjusted their projections. I mean, they had between two and 4%, uh, you know, reduction in GDP last year, and then they're, you know, about two or 3% uh, projected for 2023. But, but these are not the level, the mag- le- the me- level of magnitude that people were talking about uh, inflation, maybe on the, you know, maybe, uh, you know, growing, but it's not, it's spiking uh, as was projected. Um, and so obviously Russia economically is speaking, and there are a number of reasons they were the fortress going from the fortress Russia's, uh, strategy to the oil prices, uh, the, the gradual dimension to the, to the nature of sanctions, um, and the limited element of sanctions that have really, for the most part, been targeted. They've just increased the targets, but they haven't made them mass, massive sanctions. So there are a number of reasons on the tactical side, but I would say 
The biggest thing to keep in mind about Russia as a target for economic warfare and economic sanctions is we needed to appreciate um, what the purpose has been. The purpose has has shifted. So prior to 2022, the goal was really to, to, you know, to, to one, deter Russia from further, you know, escalation, as well as to get them to reverse their policies in in Crimea, et cetera. Uh, After 2022, um, you know, the focus is, you know, increasingly gravitated towards degradation of Russia's military capability and industrial uh, capability. Well, those are rather two rather large burdens um, to to uh, level on, uh, you know, to heap on sanctions as an instrument of policy, um, because there, Russia has a number of different um, release valves. For that. First off, they can respond to sanctions as they have in different ways. They don't just respond by reciprocal sanctions of leveling like, you know, their own agricultural sanctions. They can block some of the sanctions. They can, you know, through import substitution, uh, they can look for other markets, like you mentioned with oil and gas with, uh, you know, China and India, um, uh, to some extent. You, um, they can uh, have macroeconomic uh, policies uh, that can impose macroeconomic controls, uh, which they've actually proved quite deft at doing. Uh, they can also lash out in other ways, not just on an economic plane, but one of the things we were we were seeing in the lead up to the war is that as we were leveling more and more sanctions, they were practicing other coercive behavior, either by pulling out of or, or uh, threatening to pull out of uh, the cooperation in the talks with Iran, uh, you know, increasing their military, escalating their military involvement in Syria, uh, obviously escalating their their uh, malign activities in Ukraine. So there were a lot of other dimensions to their coercive behavior uh, that ha- that were not being captured by just focusing on economic statecraft. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind about Russia is that there's there two kinds of shock absorbers that they have. One is their whole understanding of sanctions and the relationship between sanctions and war is different than ours. But for the most part, we have historically seen sanctions as an alternative to kinetic uh, military conflict. Um, and, you know, in a nutshell, they've increasingly grouped sanctions with information warfare and energy uh, diplomacy as part of a broader definition of war, this new gen- next generation warfare, which blurs again the line between peace and warfare. Uh, and as a result, any signals that we were trying to send with sanctions prior to 2022 were kind of getting lost in the way that they were thinking they were already at war. So these were not, you know, the, the kinds of things that we were discur- trying to deter, I think, were not resonating. And if anything, the fact that we were so targeted with our sanctions was possibly sending a signal of our weak resolve and that they didn't think we were willing to stand up any firmer than targeted sanctions or we didn't have the political capacity to sustain anything more than those targeted sanctions. Now, I think both sides are proved wrong uh, with the with the you know current rounds of sanctions just you know keep continuing to escalate. But that said, there's a they have a different playbook of war. But also, there's some cushions in terms of the Kremlin. The way that, you know, in a nutshell, you know, the Kremlin's, the political economy of the Kremlin is such that, you know, Putin really allocates rents uh, across different stakeholders among the elite. And uh, as a result, sanctions that target oligarchs, first off, there's there are oligarchs that are 
that are highly leveraged in the West that uh, that have no influence over the Kremlin. They're just vulnerable, and you've seen their yachts and other things get uh, easily uh, taken up. The ones that actually are closer to the Kremlin, well, the sanctions only drive them even closer to the Kremlin, right? Because they're 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 losing any other opportunities. The other people around uh, Putin, security forces and close cronies from St. Petersburg and other Siloviki, well, they have no constituency other than they're bound up with Putin. So targeting sanctions on on the Russian elite doesn't lead to, you know, an opportunity to drive a wedge between them and Putin. It just drives them more uh, to Putin. Now, with the pop, with the population, you know, this is something that I think neither we nor, frankly, the Kremlin have a very clear understanding. Uh, but to date, we've seen that recessions and you know GDP volatility has not led to demonstrations in the streets. And historically, the Putin regime has relied on providing stable employment, providing pensions, providing energy subsidies. These are the basic deals that they make with the population. It's not about efficiency. It's not about um, you know um, innovation. Uh, it's it, it's these basics. And to the extent that the Russian economy has continued to be able to provide those things, uh, that provides a lot of insulation. And hence, you see a depolitization, if you will, overtly at least, of, of the Russian population. Uh, you know, and this is reflected. Now, you can only take poll, you know polls in Russia with, um, you know, you have to look at them for what they are. But nonetheless, they've been recording a pretty stable uh, Russian uh, popular position on sanctions, which are. Uh, one, they you know don't see them as having tremendous impact on them, uh, and, but they and they do see that they're here for a while. So it it kind of they've kind of reconciled themselves to that. So sanctions' ability to actually change Russia's strategic behavior has to be mediated through something, either through the elites or through the masses, and we see these kinds of. Uh, the per, you know the perverse political nature of the regime provides some shock absorbers for that, and you know the, so therefore there are some Russian economists and other economists who say that well even at, at Russian oil prices at fifty dollars a barrel even with price caps uh, that you know this is sustainable over uh, a number of years. Um, now I would argue that this may be the basic deal, but. Uh, sanctions alone are not going to move the needle on this, but sanctions in combination with uh, an awareness among people about the war and about the bloodshed in the war, and i.e. the casualties of body bags that may be brought back, um, that may begin to precipitate some agitation. But to date, we haven't seen that. And I don't think anybody, including the Kremlin, has a real good handle on when something could all of a sudden punctuate and escalate and then spiral out of control. And that, again, takes us back to what I was saying before. When the Kremlin uh, doesn't feel confident about knowing that calculus or they begin to see a convergence of different things from the economic impact of sanctions to the bloodiness of the war to more publicity uh, about um, the casualties uh, or, or just demonstrations that, you know, because in Russia, there are actually legal demonstrations, uh, uh, protesting utility price hikes, right? So there are constantly demonstrations going on. Uh, they're just not tied to the war. 
uh, or to a reaction to the sanctions, but they could be indirectly affecting, uh, you know, the sanctions of the war could be indirectly affecting some of those. And depending on how governors or mayors or uh, potentially uh, the federal uh, government in Russia responds to some of these things, that could be a tripwire. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that are unpredictable, I think, there based on this regime. So they are, I think, more stable and they have shock absorbers for sort of traditional types of sanctions approaches by themselves, especially targeted sanctions. Uh, but there's a there's some unpredictability about these things. So, uh, and the regime doesn't have a, you know, we saw this with the Kursk incident years ago when uh, the regime just bald, you know, gave bold-faced lies to the Russian population. And it was the mothers of the soldiers that were castigating uh, Putin that led to a spiral of demonstrations across the country. And this is a time where Putin had very high uh, approval ratings. They weren't at war. They weren't sort of ostracized uh, from the international community. And yet, all of a sudden, you had this punctuated instability. Well, I think that is a very telling uh, moment, not so much because, um, you know, any any kind of uh, single predictable incident is uh it could precipitate this kind of instability but it's the sheer unknown and unpredictable nature of that that makes it uh very complicated and it really works against say i mean sanctions it's really hard to measure then the effectiveness of these uh sanctions and realizing it so and some people think well just put more pain and more impact and at some point it'll facilitate some of these things well maybe uh on the other hand we may be implicated in the sanctions. Uh, and that may lead to this rally around the flag kinds of things. It, it gives more resilience uh, to the leadership. So it's a tightrope that we have to uh, walk with sanctions. But the other thing that I would say about sanctions, which I think is the longer term issue or the medium term issue, is that once we get to a situation where the, the combatants, Russia and Ukraine, are at a point where they want to begin thinking about some kind of ceasefire uh, and um, resolution, how are the sanctions going to be rolled back? And how are we going to roll them back in a way that's going to, in a calibrated way, to create incentives for a reformed Russian leadership and one that's committed to, uh, in, you know, a peaceful resolution uh, to be, um, you know, uh, tailored accordingly? And I think the more we heap these... Uh, these different rounds of sanctions on Russia, it's increasingly hard for seeing any Russian leadership seeing daylight at the end of anything. Uh, and that's going to be a challenge once we get to that. Right now, we're clearly not there. But if uh, once we begin to shift uh, and there becomes an opportunity to think about ceasefire and beyond, well, then we really need to think about how are we going to roll off these sanctions? What are the off-ramps to the sanctions going to be? There have been very few studies on, on um, the efficacy of off-ramps and the conditions under which and the modalities of an off-ramp that could be effective and tying to some sort of longer-term architecture for European stability. So be careful what you wish for in terms of uh, sanctions, because we, they're not having, they are having impact, but that impact isn't having the desired shift in Russian strategic behavior. And if that calculus begins to change in Russia, either one way or the other, they want to become more constructive. Well, then we've got a real challenge in figuring out how to roll back these sanctions. But if they become more 
worried and they don't have any glimmer of hope in the future, they begin to be prone to gamble for resurrection, though those sanctions are only making, only convincing them that there's no future other than to take a risk. And that's, again, where I said before, we're in a danger zone. So be careful about these. Also, you know, sanctions, um, you know, there are a lot of other types of economic behavior that have surrounded the sanctions, like over a thousand companies independently making decisions in the West to pull out of Russia. Well, it's not clear when it's time to re-engage a Russia in the future uh, with under a new leadership or whatever that context may be, that companies are going to want to come back. And so we're going to, we could have the problem that we had, uh, that we have even seen with Iran. Like when we have to reach the JCPOA, a lot of companies are like a little bit leery because they're not sure whether or not the United States would honor that deal. You know, the Trump administration reneged on that deal. And so these companies went back and then they were now going to be in the crosshairs of U.S. sanctions again when they, when U.S. policy changed. Well, in this case, how can they trust the Russian government not to pull a stunt like it did uh, with the war and leave them, you know, hanging. So I think there are a lot of uncertainties about economic warfare and particularly sanctions as we trace, as we look out over the horizon of this, of this problem. And I did want to get your thought as well on the energy aspect and in the context of everything that we've talked about, because you, you've looked at oil, gas, uh, the, the geopolitics of, of that and uh, I'm, I'm noticing a trend that in the Western world, like Western, Western Europe and the Anglosphere, because of the green, the new green deals that the EU is passing in the U.S. that we're moving away from hydrocarbons, but the rest of the world, I mean, especially here where I am in Mexico, we're we're you know we're we're still strong on on um, gasoline. We've rejected, uh, you know, AMLO has rejected uh, the re- renewables. I mean, they are installing wind and, and solar, but um, what what do you see any anything else for us that's important or relevant when it comes to? oil gas and you know new pipelines that are being built between uh eurasia you know is that going to make them stronger is there going to be any game changer there just you know any any key point uh that you you have when it comes to you know oil gas and then energy well it's a very complicated story obviously you know i would say everybody was focused on pipelines nord stream 2 etc in the lead up to this war but i think really and i, I wrote about it before and um that going into, you know, from 2021 going into 2022, the real problem was not uh, pipelines. It was about gas storage. And that's where the Europeans were seen to be very vulnerable. And I think that's why the, you know, that may have fed into the Russian calculus about when and why the timing of the war and the nature of, uh, you know, thinking that the Europeans were going to, going to uh, you know, fold um, earlier. But um that so one thing that's happened is the natural gas landscape has changed. You know, we're not in the the world of 2009 when there was a cutoff. Uh, even 2014, we've seen a lot of difference. You know, LNG and unconventionals have fundamentally changed the global landscape, and so that's created opportunities for gas to be delivered to Europe in different ways, albeit at a cost. Uh, and but it does provide alternatives. And so, you know, I would have I have been arguing that since. Uh, 2009, Russia has really watched energy become less and less a potent instrument of political and strategic influence. Um, Sure, they sold a lot of gas and there's some economic costs that countries have been going to be paying, but the strategic leverage of gas, I think, was really waning and was due to wane significantly uh, prior to this war just because of the energy transition, uh, climate change issues, et cetera. 
uh, and the and the cli- and the climate and energy transition policies, in particular by the EU. Also, I think China. Of course, there have been new pipelines open to China, but the timeline for uh, China's uh, calculation and the prices that China has been able to wrangle, um, you know, are not the same as what Russia has been thinking about. So, and and India, uh, yes, they bought uh, some of the you know the oil. Um, uh, you know, during the war, but they have a limit as to how much they can uh, they can purchase. So I, que- you know, Europe at the end of the day is a huge established market for Russian energy. There's no substitute uh, for it in a time frame um, that is you know that can affect this strategic uh, kinds of calculus. Uh, and I would argue that China has historically hedged its bets, and I mean it's, it has deals in across Central Asia for pipelines, and of course it buys most of its natural gas, imports most of its natural gas through uh, through LNG, um, and so they have much more flexibility on that. So I don't think they're uh, tied to Russia's um, strategic designs. That said, they will certainly buy at a discount. Uh, so the price caps that have been imposed. Um, uh, both for crude and for the refined products are, you know, play to their advantage to some extent um, that gives them, you know, so that was one of the ingenious elements, at least of the crude uh, price caps is that would, would uh, you know, China didn't have to sign on to it, but they would benefit by, by you know, uh, but, you know, buying it even cheaper. So uh, that's, so I think energy is becoming less and less of a strategic uh, dimension. Now, one of the things for Europe that's fascinating, I think, is that a lot of people thought at the beginning of this war that Europe was going to be facing a very difficult choice between realizing their energy transition goals, you know, moving away from hydrocarbons to then, you know, finding short-term stop gaps of, of, of natural gas, investing more in their interconnectors, uh, and the ability to receive uh, natural gas from alternative sources, which was going to come at an opportunity cost for develop, you know, advancing the energy transition and the decarbonization. But one of the things that I think is really uh, uh, interesting is the rise in discussion, especially in Europe, of hydrogen and potential for n- renewable hydrocarbons, which is sort of even, you know, and those renewable hydrocarbons can be, the you know, like taking carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, not only um, converting it into a liquid, but utilizing it and utilizing your existing hydrocarbon infrastructure. So by thinking about hydrogen and thinking about renewable hydrocarbons, you can leverage your investments today in the pipelines and in the uh, storage facilities uh, of hydrocarbons for tomorrow's uh, renewable uh, hydrocarbons. So there doesn't have to be a zero-sum trade-off between investing in hydrocarbons um uh, and and uh you know and climate change issues uh, i should say carbon capture and utilization and uh and hydrogen and um and advancing the the energy transition now one of the problems though is that russia is increasingly getting divorced from these developments right and so again right now well the it would be anathema to think about, you know, doing more energy deals with Russia. But in the future, when there's a different regime, uh, because we have to think that do we want a, a huge vacuum of power and the, you know, the in, in Eurasia, if there's any hope of engaging Russia, uh, a reformed Russian leadership, a reformed Russia in the future without hydrocarbons or without an energy dimension, that's going to be a big challenge for Russia. 
And so, you know, what are the ways that it could be plugged into? It has more promise in plugging into a renewable hydrocarbon footprint uh, than a just a strict non-hydrocarbon uh, renewable footprint, which would then force them to make some choices that could be adverse to the climate um, interests of the globe. And so that's going to be a big challenge, uh, I think, moving forward. Um, so long story short, energy, I think, is becoming less of a strategic factor. Yes, it matters because to us in the war right now because the rents from oil uh, exports are used to, to you know, uh, support the military effort. So that's why the price caps are there to try to get at those rents. Uh, but beyond that, energy as an instrument of creating asymmetrical dependence that then can be leveraged for strategic effects, I think that we're moving beyond that um, relatively rapidly. So we've covered red lines, sanctions, um, energy. Is there any other um, you know important element or, or, or uh, message you want to get uh, across related to all of this? Well, there are two probably things that I would mention that are more uh, contemporary right now in the sense that while we've seen Russia, you know, uh, declare that it's, uh, you know, unilaterally suspending its participation in the START uh, treaty, which is the last significant arms control agreement. And, you know, some people say, well, it's not a big deal. They were already suspending their inspectors and, uh, but, you know, arms control is only important, is especially important uh, when we have acrimonious relationships, because it's one of the only sources for transparency. And right now, maybe this is part of that that political manipulation that I was talking about, where Russia has been very careful about their withdrawal. They've said uh, they are, they're withdraw, they're suspending uh, their participation, but that decision is reversible. So they're leaving the door open. Uh, another thing that they've uh, said is that, you know, they said, well, um, if the U.S. tests, we're going to test, but we have no plans to test. So that's kind of more of a red herring uh, that they're throwing in there. But the risk is they're denigrating arms control further. Uh, and as a result, that could make the future of arms control, especially for domestic political, uh, you know, support much more challenging. And Again, at the end of the day, arms control is not, we're not doing a favor uh, for any side. Arms control is about introducing transparency, especially among rivals and on issues that could be existential for both or for all sides. And as a result, arms control is an important part of uh, deterrence or even a competitive strategy. It is not a, a you know, a substitute uh, for strategic interaction or based on solely on trust. Um, it has, it plays an important strategic role. And the more we denigrate that, especially as our relationship becomes more hostile uh, with Russia, the more peril we're putting ourselves in. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing is don't forget about domestic politics over the next year. Um, you're going to have domestic politics in Ukraine, domestic politics in Russia, and we're going to start getting caught up in our domestic politics. And right now, the domestic politics is not conducive for any one side to begin to, you know, convey a willingness for constructive engagement. 
And as they get closer to those elections, there's going to be more domestic pressure on Putin to demonstrate his legitimacy by standing firm because he's got to demonstrate that he's got more than 70 percent approval because he's got to be better than before. And so and of course, Zelensky is going to have an increasingly narrow uh, uh, area for him to make any kind of concessions. Uh, And then we, too, uh, Biden has invested heavily uh, in uh, the war and demonstrating uh, our leadership. And so if the parties aren't willing to reach agreement, then it's going to be a challenge for us. And so, and not to mention managing Republican defection or any other uh, questions among the American public about the sustainability of our commitment. So domestic politics, I think, is going to be playing a bigger role over the next year than it did during the first year. Yeah, you know, 2023, 2024 are going to be interesting, but it's just like every year is just crazy things are happening. So every year is just nuts. There are so many interesting, crazy, important things, scary things are uh, going on. And we've sort of covered the waterfront. If you've got any final thought and then where would be the best places to to find you uh, online or any specific projects that, that you have that we, we should know about? Well, the best place to find me is on my school website. I'm the I'm the Sam Nunn Professor and Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at uh, Georgia Tech, and so you can see what we're up to. We'll actually be having uh, next week a symposium on the war and sort of reflections uh, about the war from you know not only military perspective but this broader geoeconomic and geostrategic uh, perspective. So I invite uh, any and all to join us, and you can find out more about that on our website. Um, and my research is is posted there as well. So I would look forward to engaging with folks in, in that way or with your audience directly again with you. All right. I, I'll, as always, I will include uh, all of those uh, links uh, to your work and the Samdon School in the description. So everyone be sure to follow Dr. Silberg there. And thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I will... I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.